Okay, good morning, good morning. So make your way back to your seats this morning, and we're going to continue in the book of uh, John. If you haven't been tracking with us, that's okay, but we are, um, we are going to be in John chapter 4, finishing chapter 4 this morning, and then um, also going into the beginning of chapter 5. So if you need a Bible, John Kennedy's in the back, you can throw up your hand and he'll, he'll bring one to you. It's uh, better than DoorDash, it's free and you don't have to even go on your phone. You can just throw your hand up and he'll bring it to you. So if you need one, let John know. You'll want to follow along with us. Um, one other announcement this morning. If you don't know our friends Mike and Anna Doyle, they've been coming here for probably a little over a month. Um, they have three... Three, three kids under three, and then on Tuesday, um, they just had twins. Yes. And um, so they, God bless them. <laughs> but it's, it's awesome. Psalm 127 says, um, children are the heritage from the Lord, and blessed is the man or the woman whose quiver is full of them. So we know that they're blessed. God tells us that. And, and how awesome is that? But what we're doing is um, we're doing a meal train for them and their family, understandably so, um, with all that they're going on in their um, household right now. Hopefully help bless them a little bit and alleviate um, just the stress and everything of, of, of uh, bringing two more kids into the world. Um, so we actually have, we're going to be doing it for two weeks, and we have most of the slots filled up, but there's one more um, one more day that uh, we need a meal delivered to their house in Jefferson Hills. Um, and so there's, um, obviously there's three kids, two adults, and they just can't have any seafood. But if you um, are a cook and you'd want to um, bless them with a dinner, you can see Olivia or you can see myself. It's, I forget the date. Um, let me look real quick. It's Friday, May 27th. So if you, if you're not doing anything Friday, May 27th, and you want to um, come and cook for them and, and give them a meal. That would be awesome. Can you just come and see us afterwards? And we will give you all the details for that. So this morning in, in John chapter 4, the context of what's going on in John, remember that Jesus, he was in Jerusalem and he was with his disciples. We looked at last week and he said that, that they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going north um, to Galilee. And on, as they started their journey, remember what Jesus said, that he, he must needs go through Samaria. And we looked last week as Jesus took his disciples on a path that was inconvenient, it wasn't popular, and, and he detoured through Samaria, where most, most of the Jews, as they would travel north, as they would completely detour, they'd go out along the outer rim because they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans, they hated them, they were their enemies, right? They, they despised them, but Jesus went right to the heart of it. And, and there last week we met, um, or we looked at Jesus meeting a woman at the well, and he knew all about her. And in love, he, he confronted the issues in her life and her heart, her need for the gospel. And remember that she, she heard Jesus speak, and, and he started out as a man, and then as a, as a Jew, and then as a prophet. And then finally, as the, he, she realized that he's the Messiah of the world. He's Christ. And what did she do? 
He said that I, I will give you living water. She came just for the temporal. He said, I'll give you the eternal. I'll fill, I'll, I'm able to feel the longing that no, nothing in this world can, can feel. No, for her, it was, it was sex and relationships. He said, I will satisfy. And she experienced that. And, and then she went home. She went back to the, her town. And, and she told everybody that she knew of all that Jesus had told her. Just shared, man, what the reality of what God did for her. And remember, we, we ended um, last week in verses 39 through 42, that then the people of the town, they wanted Jesus to stay with them. And, and he came and, and they, they heard Jesus um, for themselves. And, and it's sweet, verse 30, or 42, it says, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. And that's the context. That's where we ended last week. But we pick it up in verse 43, where Jesus continues his journey north. So now he's leaving Samaria. He's leaving this town. And he's going to continue going north. And in verse 43, we pick it up. And it says, now after two days, he departed from there and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Having seen all things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So interesting, after two days in Sychar in Samaria, he, he continues in, and it says that he comes to, we're going to learn that he goes to Cana of Galilee. So you have to know kind of the context, the map. Galilee would be the northern region of Israel. So we know the Sea of Galilee is in the north. So Galilee is all that region around it. But um, Cana of Galilee would be a little bit left to the Sea of, of the Galilee if you're looking at a map. And then um, Capernaum, which we're going to mention, is, is actually right at the tip, the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is up in that northern region there. And it says, speaking of himself, he said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Interesting. So now Jesus starts to address. Remember, he's the, the context that he's doing signs, right? But there, he starts to deal with, as we're going to look at today, um, the people's heart and desire for signs, for miracles. And he says that, that he doesn't even, he, referring to himself, that he has no honor. He has, what he's referring though to is, is he's not accepted, not honored for who he is, even by those who were familiar with him, those who grew up, those in the region. Now, we can't say for sure, like 100% dogmatically, if he was referring to um, Judea, right, which is where he was born, or Galilee, which we knew that kind of was the um, starting point, the launching point where Jesus did much of his ministry. But the concept, the idea is, that his own people who knew Jesus, and again, think about it. They, they, they went to school with him. They probably, they didn't play baseball. I don't know what they would have done. But they did sports activities together, just playing out in the streets. They knew who he was. They knew of him. They knew um, his father, his mother, right? They saw him growing up from a little child to, to now 30 years old, 30 so years old. 
And they had familiarity. There was a nearness. They were rubbing shoulders with him, but they didn't have an understanding of who he truly was. And that's interesting because, see, we can be near Jesus, but not know him as the Savior. We can be familiar with all the Christian terms. We can know about the Bible even. We can know that Jesus uh, right, is a historical, true um, person who came. We can even believe that he died, but not know him as our Messiah. And Jesus is rebuking the people, his own people, the Jews who rejected him. And it seems odd, if you look in verse 45, when he says, as he came to Galilee, that the Galileans received him. So that's almost contrary to what he said. They don't accept him, but yet the Galileans received him. But the implication is that the Galileans received Christ, not as the Messiah, but because of what he did. Do you see the difference? They didn't accept him. They didn't receive him as, as the Messiah, God's the Savior that God would send. But man, this, this guy's pretty cool. He's, you know, he's obviously he's nice to be around. He's, he's not mean. He's not going to pull a fast one on me and rip me off. He even gives us lots of bread. He would give us lots of food. He's, he, he's bucking against the religious leaders overturning tables. I, I like this guy. That, that was their mindset. And, and they wanted to accept him for even what you could say, what they could get out of it. Not for truly who he was. And there's a difference. Being familiar with Christ, but they stopped short of being saved. And that's a warning to us. Familiarity without understanding. See, and as we examine Christ through the lens of the word of God, we understand who he is. And it reminds me of Jesus. Remember when um, after he rose from the grave, the, the, he was walking with these two men on the road to Emmaus. And they were, they were so discouraged. They were down, downtrodden. And as they're walking, it says, Jesus asked them, what's, what's going on? Why, why, why are you so depressed? And they told him, don't you know? Man, the one who we thought was the Messiah, the one, this guy who was doing marvelous things, who we thought was going to start a, a revolution, he was killed. Now he's, he's no longer in the grave. And remember, Jesus says, starting with Moses, he went through all of the Old Testament and he expounded and he, and he showed them through the word of God how Christ had indeed to suffer and to die, that he was the Messiah. See, Christ didn't come and say, well, just pat him on the back and give him a nice pep talk and cheer up, it's gonna be okay. But he showed them who the Messiah was through the lens of the word. And, and where, what the issue was is when their circumstances and what they thought the Lord had to do in their mind, what they necessarily wanted him to do was off with what the word of God says, the Messiah, who he is and what he would do. So God always wants us to bring, uh, see him as revealed in the word of God. And that's important. And see, Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to forgive our sins. Sure, we might be blessed. We might experience, right, health. We might experience um, a, a great job. We might experience a family, those things. But he didn't come to primarily give us that. He came to come. He came and died for our sins. 
that we would be forgiven. And, and so we see that. And, and the people missed out on that. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to be offended by him. But we want to honor him as Christ our King. And it's in this context that Jesus, he goes on now, and he kind of, this sets the stage, introducing it for all that he's going to um, do in the rest of chapter 4 and even going into chapter 5. So we come to verse 46, and it says, So Jesus, he came again to Cana of Galilee. And again, remember, Cana was in that northern region in Israel, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, Cana's to the left a little bit. So he came to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So remember, Jesus' first public miracle was at a wedding feast. He turned, they were running out of wine, and, and Mary came up to him and, 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 it, and poured him to, to help there. And so Jesus turned this water into wine, so the people, again, were familiar with Christ. That's important. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to, to him, he went to Jesus, and he implored him to come down to, and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So now we see this man enters the scene, Jesus at Galilee, uh, this nobleman we told enters in. And see, the Lord is going to use this man to, treat, to teach and to address all of those in the region of Galilee. What do we know about, about this man who enters the scene? Well, number one, we're told that he's a nobleman. That means that he's, he's uh, some governmental official, probably. You know, we're not told for sure his name or, or who exactly he is, what um, office he held, but many believe that he would be an officer in the court of Herod the Tetrarch. So Herod the Tetrarch would be the Roman um, kind of governor in that region. So he was in with the Romans, and yet he had power then, he had authority, right? Who, who would be, he would be respected by, by the world, they would look up to him. We're also told that he's from where? Capernaum. And remember again, geography, we know that Cana's to the left of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum's right on the, the northern tip, the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, so the distance between there is about 20 to 30 miles. So you're, you're getting the picture, right? He traveled 20 to 30 miles to come down. So no, no doubt word had traveled then from the people in, in, in Cana that Jesus is back, man. They, 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 they knew, they, they remember, this is the guy who just turned water into wine. They, they, they wanted signs. They, they, they were excited about that. And, and word traveled 20 or 30 miles. So again, he, they, it's not like somebody posted on Facebook, hey, Jesus is back and, and everybody knew and could instantly come down. But the message had to travel through people. So he was there a few days. Now we're also told that this man's son, the noble man's son was sick. He was sick. Put yourself in his shoes. You're, you're 20 or 30 miles away. You're... Your son, as we're going to read, is actually at the point of death. And this man hearing that Jesus is, he, he's up in this region, I, I can go to him. I can walk down to him. So now, no doubt the, the nobleman was, was desperate, right? There was, there was something driving him, his love for his son, 
who was at death's doorstep. He was willing, and I think this says a lot because this would be hard. He was willing to leave his son who might die at any moment to walk 20 or 30 miles to go to Christ. So he had no other hope. If there was anything that he could have done in in, in Capernaum, if, if the doctors were able to do it, or, or if there's some other solution, no doubt it's, he, he's tried, he's looked for it, but he goes to Jesus. And we're told there that he implored him to come down and to heal his son. So he finds Jesus and he, he goes to Christ, come, just come and touch my son, come and heal him. I, he, he knows who Christ is. He knows that he's powerful, again, able to turn water into, into wine. And he asked, he asked him to come back, to make that journey 20 or 30 miles away. See, the nobleman's understanding um, of Christ was still limited. He knew that, that Christ was able to heal because he went to him and he asked him. But in this man's mind, Christ still had to go with him. He had to be present Christ had to reach out and touch his son for him to be healed. And look at verse 48. We see Jesus' response. He says, Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So the nobleman continues to plead with Christ to come down. After his, his first response is not, yeah, that I'll, I'll, I'll come down, I'll go with you, I'll touch your son. So he's, he, we see, again, that, that desperation. And, and he wants the assurance of knowing, of, of seeing Christ there, reaching out and touching his son. But Jesus' response is interesting in verse 48. Unless you people... See, signs and wonders, you by no means believe. Jesus, it seems kind of harsh, right? Man, this guy, he has a legit need. His son is dying, and yet you say, you're, you're talking about signs and wonders? And what we see here is that the Lord's using this trial, this difficulty in this man's life, and this even a family, right, to get at the heart of the real issue. That their, their understanding, their commitment to Christ is just based on the signs and the wonders. Yeah, he, we're going to look at, he did have some faith, but it was just on, on the signs, on the, on the miracles. And that's what the Jews wanted. That's what they desired um, in totality. And how do we know this? Well, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 24. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 24 there we read, um, Paul says, as I turn there, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So that's what Jesus was getting at the heart of the issue of those in the region of Galilee and even this man himself, of their desire, their need for, to want to see a sign, to want to see a miracle. 
And the same is true today. People desire the spectacular. They want to see God do a sign for him to prove that he is God, that he's real, that he's the Messiah. And it's important that we know this. We're to beware. There's, there's warnings to heed. See, signs don't produce true faith, but signs produce a desire or a hunger for more signs, to see more spectacular. Well, how do we know this? The Bible gives us plenty of examples of it, doesn't it? Remember the Israelites as God brought them out of Egypt? What did he do? Well, first, when they were still in Egypt, he, did, <laughs> he sent ten plagues. The gnats, right? All the cattle dying. The rivers turning into blood. Can you imagine if you worked on the river like some of us do here and the river turned into blood? How disgusting that would be, the smell, the stench of that. The, the darkness, right? The whole, everything was dark in Egypt except for where the Israel, Israel was over them. Then it, there it was still light. We saw the, they saw the frogs. And then the, the, the death of the firstborn. The Israelites, they saw these miracles that God was doing. Not only that, but then as they're going, as, as Pharaoh finally lets them go, what did they do? They walked through on dry ground, through the Red Sea. God parted the waters. It's not even like God parted the waters and then they had to go through on mud. It was dry ground. They get to the other side and the waters close and defeats the Egyptian army. Not only that, but then now God meets them, right? Uh, he meets Moses up on Mount Sinai and they see the, the, the thunder and the lightnings. They, they hear uh, the trumpets, right? God gives them the law. They're there and we, you know that they saw the snakes that came into the camp. And they saw God heal those as he, they looked to the bronze serpent on the pole. They, they saw that as they were traveling through the desert and they were thirsty, that Moses, at the Lord's um, command, he struck the rock and the rock opened up and water came forth. They saw God send quail. So much so that they ate and it was like coming out of their nostrils, the Bible says. They, they saw God send manna from the, from the sky every morning and they would wake up. And it was like, it, you know how amazing Walmart delivery is when you just go outside and, and they deliver it, they set it on their porch? Well, they, they, would just, they just had to go out and collect it morning by morning for 40 years. They saw do, God do all these miracles and yet it says that they didn't enter into the promised land, that they couldn't enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. See, they saw the signs, they saw the miracles, but it didn't produce true faith in them. See, you can reject the Lord in spite of seeing signs. In that context um, of what we just talked about, Psalm 78 tells us the same thing. Psalm 78 verses 12 through 16 there we read, marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt. In the field of Zoan, he divided, divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he also led them with a cloud. And at night, with a light of fire, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. And then if you jump down to verse 32, listen to this. He says, in spite of this, 
they still sinned and did not believe his wondrous works. See, signs don't produce true belief. Signs can also be used for an excuse for unbelief. That's what we're going to see that the Pharisees do as we continue to go through um, John. They say, well, if you're truly the Messiah, then send down a sign from heaven. Signs can be used as an excuse for unbelief. Signs can also be used for desire of self-consumption, not a desire to know the Lord. And we see that as, as Jesus was among the multitudes, and it says that they came and they just wanted the bread that he would continue to give to them as he would multiply the loaves and the fishes. So their desire for signs was, man, what can I get out of it? What, what out of the miraculous is can I just consume upon myself? And so beware of this. Not only that, but do you know that the Bible says that not all signs are from the Lord or miracles? In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, there we read that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So just because there's something quote-unquote wondrous, spectacular happening doesn't mean that it's from the Lord. So God's addressing this deeper issue in this man's heart and in the Galileans. And, and even with us today, dealing with their desires for the miracles. And it seems harsh on the surface, but isn't it loving of Christ to do that? He sees right through and he pinpoints right at the issue. And did you ever have a friend that knows you? Maybe you know, if you're married, your wife who does that, or someone that you're just, man, so close with. And, and when there's that stuff going on in your, in your life, they, you can, we can make all the excuses. We keep it surfacey, but they can go down right to it and put their finger on it because they know you that well. See, that's what the Lord's doing. He did it with the woman at the well, and he's doing it again here. See, his, his desire is beyond just the temporal. Of course, he could have went down with a man and healed his son, but it wouldn't produce lasting and faith saving faith in this man. He has the eternal in mind. And so what, is the Lord, what does Christ say? And look down in verse 50. He goes on, and it says that Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, and they told him, saying, Your son lives. And they inquired of them what hour he had gotten better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself, this man, the noble man, he believed in his whole household. And this again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So not heeding the nobleman's plea, Christ simply told him that his son was healed. Think about this. At that opportunity, he, this man had a choice. He could say, no, he's not. What do you mean? There's no way. You didn't touch him. You, how, how can my son be made whole? He could continue to plead with Christ to come down or, or he could just go away in disgust and in disbelief. 
But this man, it says that he simply believed the words of Christ. He believed the word of God and he went. Now again, he went not knowing if his son was healed. We, we know that he believed Christ. He believed him at his word and he acted upon it going. But again, it's not like he could send a, twic, a, a quick text message and say, How, how's he doing? Can you give me an update? He couldn't put him on FaceTime. He didn't know. Many believe, even um, if you look at the context of the time and again how far and how long it would have taken to walk back, that he probably spent the night there in Cana. And what was it like? Was he was he was it a sweet night's sleep? Again, not seeing that reality in, in front of him for himself, but knowing in his heart, man, he healed him. And he believed him. See, at that moment, by Christ not going down, by not knowing instantly, no sign was given. He simply had to trust. To trust Christ. To take him at his word. And he probably spent that night there. And and now he, he gets up in the morning excited, no doubt, to go and to see his son. And as he's on his way, his servants meet him. They, and, and I just imagine, what were the servants doing as they were back with his son? And all of a sudden, right, Jesus spoke the word and, and, and the, the uh, child was healed who was at the point of death. And then what were the servants like? What just happened? Man, we got to go tell him. We got to go tell our master. And so I, I just imagine in the morning, they, they get up with the good news that he's healed. He's not going to die. He's been made whole. And they meet in the journey somewhere along the way. And, and, and the nobleman curious about, well, when did he get healed? It was at the seventh hour, right when he knew Jesus had spoken those words. Instantly he was healed. At his word, he was healed. So two things that we can learn from this. See, we see that in this demonstration that, we, that Christ has power over disease, and, and even over distance, doesn't he? He didn't have to be present for his power to work. He didn't physically have to go and to, to be in, in the room with that child. But even as he was in a whole different city or town, he just spoke the words, and the word of God is powerful. And you think about it, it was Christ who, we know that he's the creator of the world. It tells us that Christ created And yet he spoke the earth into existence. So we see the power of of his word to overcome sickness, to overcome distance. And in this, he's even displaying of, of who he truly is. And it's encouraging even for you and I as we see that demonstrated because yes, Christ isn't physically with us, right? In the sense of, of he's not standing here. We know that he's in the midst of us because as believers, we know that we are the temple of, of God, that the Holy Spirit is abiding and dwelling in us. But even as, right, the physical is in presence, his power we can still experience. And we can access him through prayer. Go right into the throne room of grace. How sweet that is. That we can take him at his word. You and I then have the word of God. We have the words of life the words of Christ right here. And, I, and, and I'm encouraged too, and I wonder how the Lord desires to 
deal with our hungry hearts that are just desiring after the signs, after maybe the miraculous. And that he's willing, that he wants even this morning to go and, and to pinpoint those areas in our life to develop faith, to develop trust in him. See, this man, it's encouraging. It, he didn't have it all perfect. He didn't have it all right, right? He thought that Jesus had to go with him. But this small amount of faith, just even that he was willing to go to Christ, the Lord started there. He just came to him. And God, Christ uh, worked with him there. F.B. Meyer says this, Christ immediately sought to develop the faith by the only means through which faith can ever grow, namely by trial. And even maybe in my life or in your life this morning, there's some difficulty going on. There's something that's at death. Maybe it's not a physical death of a, of a child or a sibling or of a loved one, but maybe a job seems to be dying. A relationship seems to be dying out. Whatever it may be, I don't, I don't know. But the Lord's saying, do you believe me? Do you trust my word? Do you believe that I'm able to work in this for your good? And it might not look, again, like we want to, our, our desire to consume it and to work it out perfectly. Well, Lord, you'll, you'll, you'll take care of this and you'll heal this relationship. Well, maybe God won't. I don't know. But God wants to develop something deeper, and that's a trust in who he is, in his word. Have you taken God at his word? Maybe he's given you a promise. that There's the promise that he's shown you in the past, and it seems to have died by the wayside. Well, I'd encourage you today, even if it hasn't come to fruition yet, don't lose heart. Man, just trust the Lord at his word. Maybe, again, maybe you came in here and you're a doubt. Maybe you're not saved. And man, if the Lord would just heal this, or if, if the Lord would just work this perfectly out, then I, then I know that he truly loves me or that he, then I'll submit my life to him, this whole Jesus thing. Well, God wants to deal with that even this morning. And he says, we, we look at his word, we see that, again, Christ is the Messiah, that he suffered and died for you. And this morning, you have an invitation, even if you've never trusted him as your savior, to take him at his word and to experience life. And it's interesting, as we have that opportunity to, um, for salvation, to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. It was the father's love that drove him to walk 20 or 30 miles on behalf of his son that was on death's doorstep. And yet, it was our Heavenly Father's love that drove Him to send our Son to die for us who are at death's doorstep. Isn't it sweet just to take a step back and to look at that? So, so Jesus is, is dealing with the, a deeper heart issue, and we see, man, taking the Lord at His word, simply believing, believing the word of God. And He continues this as we go into chapter 5, and there we see, um, even uh, the, the father's heart now is demonstrated as a man is healed by the pool of Bethesda. So in verses 1 through 4, he kind of sets the stage in the context of what's going on. And we read that after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, you're, you might be a little bit confused because if Jesus 
if it says Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, um, and if you are looking at a map, or, or if you go back in the, your, the back of your Bible, Jerusalem isn't up from Galilee. Jerusalem is down from Galilee. It's, it's, south, it's um, south of Galilee. But again, Jerusalem would be up on a mountain, up on a hill. So no matter kind of where you're coming from, even if you would be going from north to south, you'd still at one point go up. You'd go up to the mountain to Jerusalem. And it says, Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel, verse 4 tells us, went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the wa- up the water. Then whosoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. So there's some time in between, a, f- a few days at least. We're not exactly sure what feast is mentioned here. It says that he went back down for one of the feasts. Um, we don't know exactly but if you know the city of Jerusalem, that in the northern uh, part of the city would be the Sheep Gate. And, and so it's, it's named, um, you can guess what was near the Sheep Gate. That's where they kept the sheep for the temple. And there, it was on the northern part, north of the temple. And that's where um, you could take the road from uh, Jericho into the city. And so Jesus comes into that gate. And he says, even there, there was this pool, the Pool of Bethesda. The pool of, some call it, say, say that it's translated the pool of mercy or the gate of mercy. Um, but nevertheless, this pool was used for the temple again. The sheep there for the temple, it's all uh, near with uh, the temple itself. And they would use the water for the, for the pool. And it, we're, we're told too that it has some kind of covering. There was these five porches there. So uh, again, there's not like, like much vegetation. You're in the city, right? So this was a place even um, as we see that many would come and who were sick and, and paralyzed, the lame, that were diseased. And they would come and they would sit by the water's edge. They would, there was some shade there, some relief from the heat of the day. And not only were there just some, but it says that there was a multitude. So there was a great number there. They were there, blind, lame, paralyzed, sick. And isn't that a picture of, man, just sin in the world. There was the world in sin. Us in, in sin. Before we came to Christ, we were sick. And there was some messed up stuff in our life, wasn't there? We were lame. We, we couldn't walk. That's the idea. How, how God intended us to. We couldn't walk with the Lord. We were withered or paralyzed, unable to function how God created us to function. That's what sin does. And notice we see in verse 4 that they were waiting there for what? It says that there was a stirring of the water, a stirring of the water that that would happen. Now, some might have, uh, there's a few different takes on this. You know, some say that that this was superstitious and that it never actually happened. Um, So, you know, was there just this rumor, like, you know, if you go there, uh, you know, maybe it was because it was near the temple and, you know, God did heal at the temple. I, I, I don't know. And so they associated it with that. And, and so all these people who were in need, they would go there uh, because of the superstition. Or 
Or, you know, it, it certainly could have been that this actually did happen. This stirring of the water. And, and we don't know exactly, but from what it tells us there is that an angel would come down and stir the water. And, and, and who was it? It was the, the first one into the water would be healed. You're probably like, okay, well, how did the Lord, why would the Lord work like this? This is a little bit odd. See, we're not told of if this actually happened or not, but some things that we can deduct, being Bible students and looking um, at the character and the nature of God. Well, this was probably, if this angel did come and there was indeed a stirring of the water, it was probably demonic. Again, we, we talked about in Thessalonians 2, 9, how not every working of sign or miracle is of the Lord, that Satan can also do that. Then you're saying, well, how do you know that? It doesn't specifically say. Well, look at the context of, of the culture or kind of the environment that would be happening. Put yourself in, in the shoes of one of the multitudes who were there waiting for this stirring of the water. It would be worse than Black Friday and if Walmart was giving away TVs. The chaos, the madness, the, the clawing, the scratching of climbing to get over one another, to get into the waters, oh my. Notice who was healed. It was, it was only one and it's the first one. You had to beat everybody out, didn't you? You had to prove yourself in some way better than everybody else and then you could get healed. See, that's not who our Lord is, is it? See, God says in his grace, man, you don't have to be, it's not the best. It's not the person on top. He comes to the lonely, to the outcast, to those on the outskirts who, who maybe in the world's eyes, quote unquote, are lame. He comes to them. It's not, the, the gospel is in a competition. But put this, you can even say, uh, again, going down that kind of thought path, that this is often even maybe the world's salvation. Beat everybody else out. And then, man, that ailment that you have, that, that thing in you that's unacceptable or that lameness, you'll be healed of it, right? Work your way to the top. Is there anything wrong with um, being an executive or being at the top? No, but if we're looking at that to... Um, heal us in some way, make us acceptable in some way. See, we're trusting that as our salvation. Do you see that? And so this chaos isn't of, of the Lord. We know that God is the God of order even. But we can even see that this is much like religion, isn't it? Religion says, man, just be a little bit better than everybody else. Religion says, even the people that you go to church with, Point out the things that they do wrong so everybody knows that I'm just a little bit better than they are. And if you look at the context, again, taking, knowing the pool, knowing the setting, there's those in need escaping the heat of the day. Religion, as one pastor puts it, offers a shade. There's no healing, but it has some type of relief, doesn't it? There's no change. And what a warning to us the world's salvation, to just hide in the shade of religion, being complacent with how things have always been, being complacent living in sin, living in brokenness. Religion offers that, but Jesus, as we'll see, says, I'll, let me make you whole. 
And he goes on in verse 5, Jesus says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 30 years. And that when Jesus, when he saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? Now this is sweet. A multitude of people. All of these vast people there. And it says that Jesus saw one. He saw this man. He saw him. And, and it just, you know, salvation's personal. He could have healed everybody there, but he goes to the one. And it has to be you and it has to be I who come to Jesus, who accept him. It can't be our, 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 our um, sibling or our spouse or our parents, our friend. And Jesus, he sees you. He sees the individual. And it says that he had this infirmity for 38 years. And I wonder, what, what was going through this guy's mind? For 38 years, man, will this be the, the time or the day when I, when I finally get in there first? When I can beat everybody else out? Did he still have hope? I, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But, but just asking myself, man, if I were in his shoes, what would, what would be going through my mind? We also see that he was lying there. So he couldn't come to Jesus, could he? He was helpless. And Jesus met him. Jesus went to him where he was. And that was, that's us and our sin. Religion says climb to God, strive, show yourself worthy of, of being in God's presence and then he will save you. But grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ says that God sent his son to come to us as we were lying there, helpless and lame and paralyzed. And just know that Jesus saw him as an individual in the midst of, of the many. And even this morning, Jesus sees you. Not only that, but it says that Jesus knew his infirmity. See, Jesus sees you and he knows you. He knows what, what's going on in your life. He knows the sin. He knows the sickness. And he's come. He knew his condition, and he asked him a question, do you want to be made well? See, Christ didn't ask him, it's interesting, do you want help to the water? Do you want me to sit here and wait with you until, until the water is starting to stir again, and then I'll carry you down there to, to make sure that you're first? Jesus simply says, do you want to be made well? See, one pastor says it this way, that Jesus came to deliver us from competition, to deliver us from the world, to deliver us from religion, to completely take us out of it, to give us new life. He simply asked him a question. And the man's response <laughs> says, well, well, don't you know, it's, it's not that that I need. I, I, I keep trying. I, I want to be first, but I never make it. But then in verse 7, Jesus says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, another steps before me. Jesus said to him, verse 8, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. So Jesus didn't answer or heal the man, I should say, in the way that I would kind of think that he had to. He simply says, Rise, get up. Again, the power of God, uh, the, the Word of God. 
See, and God commanded him to, to rise, and God's commandment is his enablement, isn't it? And you say, okay, well, I, I, I know that. I get that, right? And, and it, you know, we're not sitting here um, physically paralyzed in the sense like this man was. But even for us today, the sin that you're in, Jesus says that in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, I'm actually going to read it. Uh, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, Look at the word of God there for us. In, in the reality of sin, there, um, the word says that for when we were still without strength, that reminds me of the layman, this guy who had no strength to stand up. It says that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been, been justified by his blood, we shall by, be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if when we were enemies, we were lame, we were the outcast, we were the out on the, on, on the um, peripheral, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by or in his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our through our Lord Christ Jesus, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, it says that Christ came and he died for us, that he saved us. And now in Christ, that's who you are. He's done it. So rejoice in that. He doesn't say, come on, I'll carry you down there. He said, I, I've done it all. Not only that, but for us, he's calling us to forsake sin and not to continue in it. How do we know that? Well, Jesus commanded that man to don't leave your bed there in case you want to come back to it and lie down again. He says, take up your bed. There's no going back. You don't need to fall. You don't need to continue in that anymore. And continuing in Romans verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 6 verses, uh, starting with verse 5, it says that we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this. So this is the reality of what God has done. That our old man was crucified with him, with Christ. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. You and I have died with Christ. We're buried with him. Now listen to this. It says, now we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, here's the application for you and I. We are to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, he's defeated sin. Christ has conquered sin. There's no need to live in it anymore. There's no need to keep provision to, um, you know, just keep that, that, um, if, that alcohol around that we have to go back there, that substance. There's no need to keep um, that computer around so we could go back to the pornography. We don't need to continue that gossip at work or, or in, even in our friend group. I don't have to make no provision for the flesh, the Bible says. Take up your bed and walk. Christ has done it. He's delivered you from that. He's freed you. He's freed me. Now he says to walk. See, the Christian life, he doesn't just say rise, take up your bed, but walk. 
What's that remind you and I of? Walk with the Lord. Enjoy the fellowship with Him. For number one, enjoy that fellowship. But it even reminds me of just, man, in, in enjoying fellowship with God, we're functioning and we're living life as He has intended it, to be in His presence. Man, walk with God. One person pointed it out this way, that sometimes as Christians, now we're saved and, and we, want, we want people to carry us. We, we want to keep going back to that person, that one, that one, man, just go to the Lord. Walk with Him. Let Him do it. And it's as, it's as if the Lord is setting these two, um, these two healings, or you can say salvations, up against each other for us to compare and to see. Man, religion, the world, there's competition, there's chaos, there, there's limitedness, but then we see it's set up against the grace of God. That in Christ Jesus, he's done it all. He's come to us. He comes to the lame, quote-unquote, of the world. The nobodies. And he does it for us all. At his word. Even in this, there was no physical touch of Christ. But the man had to believe Christ at his word. So do you see the theme? Have you taken God at his word? Have I believed God's word? Have I believed the gospel of this is reality? It's not about the signs, the wonders, the miracles. Although it is a miracle what he's done. Although it is a miracle that I don't have to sin. You and I don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. That he's saved us. That we're new creations. But we take him at his word for it. But it's interesting to see the Father's heart as you continue in, uh, on. It says... In verse, um, finishing out verse 9, And that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus did all of this on the Sabbath day, which would be, the Sabbath day means that that's for the Jews. That was like their set-aside day to worship the Lord, to go to temple, to go to church. They weren't to do any work. That's why the Lord points this out. It's a big deal. He healed him on the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to, G said to this man who was healed, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. See, they were so focused on the law that they missed the fulfillment of the law in love, that Jesus was, in his love, he came to this man and healed him. So they, they have this issue, and they take it up with the man, and then in verse 12 it says, then they asked him, who is this, oh, I'm sorry, in verse 11, the man answered, and he said to them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. There's others who had an issue with what this man was now doing. But what did he do? He just took it up the chain. And, and if you're a worker, and if you have a boss, and you just do what your boss says to do, and then somebody else, under, or, or somebody else gets mad at what you do, you say, well, it's not, not my issue. I just did what, what he goes, the chain of uh, authority of command told me to do. Go take it up with them. That's what he's saying. See, he recognized by obeying, stepping out, taking Christ at his word, that Christ, again, see the authority that he had? He said, I was just obedient. And in verse, um, in verse 12, they say, and they asked him, who is this man who said, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed, he did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn himself withdrawn a multitude 
being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, So you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed, and they told the the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so there's this controversy over the Sabbath. Um, Notice that in all of this, they didn't ask... um, they didn't ask how he was made well. They just wanted to go, man, why are you disobeying our traditions, our laws? They weren't concerned with the miracle that happened in front of them because the miracle, the signs, remember, were to point to the Messiah as the Old Testament said that this is who he was. He'd heal the blind, the lame, the deaf. But the man was obeying Jesus and taking up his bed. But Jesus, he, he then comes and he meets the man in the temple. It's sweet that he was worshiping in the temple. And what did Jesus say to him? He says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come from you. So the implication, we don't know exactly, but the the, um, state that that man was in was probably as a result of some sin. And And G. Campbell Morgan says this. He said that the healing of this man was in order that there might be right living afterwards. And so, see, Jesus came and he met him, not that he could continue in sin, but that there might be right living. See, and apart from Christ, there's no way that we can live right. And he's not saying, now come and and live out the law, but he's saying, come and and walk in the newness of life. Come, live life as, as I intended it to be. And so, man, the word saved us not so that we dabble in sin anymore, but that we might live right. But even the question for you and I, even this morning, is Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? The invitation is free. Jesus has done it all. The grace of God says, if you come to him, if you confess your sins, if you recognize Jesus as your Messiah, that he will save you. Save me out of my sin. But do you want to be made well this morning? He doesn't say, do others around you want to be made well? You. They see it's personal. And so that invitation is even even this morning. If there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, as the worship team comes forward and we we play this uh, and worship this last song together, If that's you, don't leave this place without responding to the Lord. Without responding to Him. But also, for those who have responded, let's be like this man and let's worship the Lord. Let's remind, remind ourselves of what He's done. Of the freedom that He's given us to walk righteously, upright with Him. And so, Father, this morning, we just pray that over this next uh, minute or two, Lord, that You would um, just continue to work and Lord, our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here, God, would they um, respond to You? Not for the miracles, but Lord, um, take that opportunity to trust You at Your Word and to come and to truly know Christ as their Messiah. Lord, and if there's anyone else, Lord, who maybe is just struggling in general, with um, fear or or maybe it's some sin that they feel like they're entangled in or that they wouldn't leave this place without being reminded and 
Um, and walking again Lord, that, in that new freedom that is available to us. And so, Lord, just have your way over this next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand.